The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. I want to welcome you today to the Zion Primitive Baptist Church podcast. This podcast is an outreach of Zion Primitive Baptist Church, which is located in the Zion community near Gordo, Alabama. I'm Elder Chris McCool, and I serve as pastor of Zion Primitive Baptist Church. We are a congregation of believers in the sovereign grace of God where families worship together through the simple practice of preaching, praying, and singing. If you live in this area or are visiting here, we would love to have you attend worship services with us. We meet every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. and every Sunday evening at 5 p.m. and the first and third Wednesday evenings at 6.30 p.m. I'm happy to note that our daily podcast is featured on Grace Alone Radio, which you can find at gracealoneradio.net. You can find the schedule on the website, and you can also download an app to your phone so that you can listen wherever you are. Grace Alone Radio is a 24-hour streaming service which carries the message of God's sovereign grace around the clock and around the world. Zion Primitive Baptist Church is located at 9487 County Road 49, Gordo, Alabama. That's near the intersection of County Road 49 and Alabama Highway 159, about 10 miles north of Gordo, Alabama, and about 8 miles northeast of Reform, Alabama. If you're interested in finding more sermons, you can go to our website at zionpbc.com, that's z-i-o-n-p-b-c.com, where you'll find all of our posted sermons as well as a link to subscribe to our podcast. You can also subscribe to our website which will update you every time a new sermon is posted. Today's sermon is a sermon preached on Easter Sunday morning of 2023, entitled, Ought Not Christ to Have Suffered? We are posting this sermon in its entirety because it's hard to break it up into parts and get the full sense of the message. Due to the length of the sermon and the desire to post the sermon in its entirety, we will not have a song today. So please stay tuned for this message about why Christ went to the cross and suffered for his people, even though not one of them deserved it. This morning, I want us to go to Luke, the 24th chapter. We're going to begin reading in verse 25, but as you turn there, let me sort of set up this scene for you. This is the uh, story of the disciples who were on the road to Emmaus shortly after the crucifixion of Christ and after his resurrection, after the third day had passed. Two of the disciples had gone to Emmaus and they were walking together and they were talking together. And you may recall that the disciples did not really get it, even though Jesus told them what was going to happen. He said, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be resurrected. And instead of rejoicing when that time came, they were in great fear. And in fact, Peter, you recall, denied him three times and cursed while he did it just to make sure the point was made. And, and, and all the disciples, not just Peter, we pick on Peter, but Peter was not the only one. All the disciples forsook him and fled. He didn't go to Calvary hand in hand with anybody. He went alone to Calvary bearing the sins of his people. But now we find these two disciples that after the empty tomb has been discovered, they still didn't get it. And they were talking about the things that were going on. And, and if you recall, Jesus himself, we're told, went near to them. And even though it was Jesus in person, their eyes, we're told, were holding. They were sort of blinded, if you will, that they didn't recognize him. 
And, and then he asked him about what's going on. He said, what, what's, what's the problem? What, you're walking and you're sad. Tell me, tell me about it. And, and, and one of the disciples said, are you a stranger here? You, know, you, you, you don't know what's going on here in Jerusalem? Said, said, said there was a man named Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. He was, you know, he was, you remember Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And they all joined in in chorus here. But these two disciples now have already demoted him to the status of prophet. Said he was a prophet. Jesus was a prophet. He was mighty in word and deed, but he was just a prophet. And, and then the chief priests and the rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and was crucified him. And I like verse 21 there. It says, I can just see them because I've said things like this before. But we trusted but we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. In other words, we were just foolish. We were just wrong. <laughs> we, just knew, we just knew it was him. But, you know, they're not saying that in the faithful sense. They're saying that in the faithless sense, which I do quite often. Uh, too. I say that to my shame. He said, and beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. And, and, and their point is, is that after we trusted in him, and we thought it was going to, you know, here it is three days later and it's just hopeless, right? Hopeless again. And then as they continued to walk and talk in verse 25, Jesus turned to them and began to basically admonish them and get on to them by saying these things that we're going to read. Now I want you to listen as we read verse 25 through 27. Then he said unto them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And this morning, I want us to ask that same question that Christ asked those disciples Ought not Christ to have suffered these things? Now think about it. Ought not Christ have suffered these things? And, and let me say from the outset, before you go uh, reporting back somewhere else, that, that Brother Chris was getting off into some heresy about, well, Jesus could have flipped a coin and stayed on the cross or come off the cross. I understand from the outset that Jesus Christ could not have come down from the cross and still remain God, Okay. He couldn't have done that. Now, I know, I know, I get it that we sometimes say he could have come down. And he, he had the power, he had the ability, you know, he had the authority, if you will, so to speak. Uh, he was all powerful. But I understand that Christ could not have come down, as we're going to see. And nothing in this message, even if I say it in an inartful way, should be interpreted to think that the eternal counsel of the Godhead from eternity past was ever in jeopardy. But yet, I want us to deal with this question again. Ought not Christ to have suffered? Why did Christ have to suffer? Well, first of all, Christ suffered these things because it was required of him. It was required of him. Calvary was not some accident of faith. Calvary was not some convergence of bad circumstances and some coincidental uh, reaction of God to something that was going on in, in, uh, down here on this earth. God purposed it over in Acts, the fourth chapter, in verse 26. Listen to what it says. And I love Peter's preaching here because it reminds us of how intentional the cross was. How intentional the cross was. In verse 26 of Acts chapter 4, 
Uh, Peter says, the kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. That's an illustrious group to be against you. That's a formidable op opponent. That's a formidable set of opponents that are against you. The enemies that were against Christ were essentially the rulers of the known world. It said both Herod, who was the king of the Jews, Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman procurator there, who represented the, the most powerful nation on the face of the earth in that day, but not just them, the Gentiles also. And, and the people of Israel, everybody was joined together, united against the Lord Jesus Christ. And I got to admit to you, if, if, I looked, if I walked out this door and, and surrounding this church this morning were all of the forces of the American military and the Chinese military and the Russian military and the British military and all the other uh, uh, militaries of this world, I would be intimidated because I don't have the power to resist that kind of power, that kind of authority. The whole world was against him. And they were there for a purpose. And they thought they knew why they were there. They thought they were there to destroy the Lord's Christ. They thought they were there to hang him on a cross and get rid of this interloper, this usurper, this, this false prophet, this one who was there to, to destroy their power. We got him now. But you know why they were really there? For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. Notice it wasn't that the Lord reacted to what was going on, but he had determined before. This wasn't some mistake of circumstances. It wasn't some afterthought. Many teach that Christ's sacrifice was plan B. That when he put Adam in the garden, he said, Go and do good, and man, I've got all my hopes pinned on you, Adam, and hopefully you'll do right, and I won't have to do anything. But then God was disappointed, and God, God was frustrated, and he had to back up and re-gear and come up with plan B. No, beloved, he knew exactly what Adam was going to do. Now, he didn't cause Adam to do it. He didn't predestinate Adam to do it. We don't believe in that. There's a couple of views out there, Brother Buddy We'll probably laugh when I use these terms because we always kid about these high theological terms that nobody understands. I finally looked them up, brother buddy. Supralapsarianism is the view that God caused Adam to fall. Infralapsarianism is the view that God didn't really know whether God, Adam was going to fall or, or, or even having foreseen it, he reacted to it. But that's, neither one of those is correct. God had purposed from before the foundation of the world that he would save his people from their sins. Christ's sacrifice was not plan B. It was not a reaction. And scripture clears this up. Remember what 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20 says? He was verily foreordained before the foundation of the world. That's what Christ was. He was not the reaction to it. He was the solution to it that had been purposed from before the foundation of the world. We're told in 2 Timothy 1.9 that he has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, not when you chose to make it available to yourself. Before the world began. He purposed that, you see. 
We're told in Ephesians 1 and 4, we're chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. We're told in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 8 that our names were written in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world. There's not some scribe up in heaven adding to the book of life and erasing names out of the book of life. That was settled before the foundation of the world. God purposed to save his people. And that's why the angel could tell Joseph in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21 that she shall bring forth a son and thou shalt call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. I love the fact that we serve a successful savior. We don't serve a Savior that's trying to get something done. We serve a Savior that did it. And as a matter of fact, that's the next point that I want to make is that God purposed it and Christ finished it. Praise God He finished it. That's what He was talking about. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things? And He went on there and told about all the places in the Scripture that it talks about that. Jesus Himself said in John 17 verse 4, I have finished the work that Thou gavest me to do. John chapter 19 is one of our favorite passages, but if you back up from verse 30 to verse 28, he said, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, there wasn't anything left undone. And then in verse 30, he cried out, it is finished. And you know, I'm just, I'm just not smart enough to figure out how that's not finished. I'm just not educated enough to get around that you see it when he said it is finished he meant it is finished that's the greek word tetelestai tetelestai means to end or to execute and particularly it applies in the execution of or the discharge of a debt <laughs> and that's something it's amazing he picked that word tetelestai it is finished the debt is paid praise god you see, God was satisfied. Turn back sometime and read Isaiah chapter 53 over there. He said, he shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. Isaiah 53 is forecasting the coming of Christ, the first coming of Christ and his death, burial, death and burial and resurrection on the cross. And we're told that even as far back as Isaiah, Isaiah understood that God would be satisfied with the sacrifice of Christ. And we're told over there in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 26 that when he had uh, now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away the, the sin by the sacrifice of himself. Let me get that right. Now once in the end of the world he hath appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's how sin was put away. Sin was not put away when you believed on him. Sin was not put away when you made the right choice. Sin was, will not be put away one day when God weighs out your good works against your bad works and your good works come out on top. Praise God for that. Because <laughs> my good works have not outweighed my bad works in any single day of my life. I can't say that my good works, and that includes my thoughts and the intents of my heart, have ever outweighed my bad works and my bad thoughts and intents of my heart in any single minute of my life. Everything I do is tainted by sin. You don't believe me? Ask my family. And I forbid them from talking to you so you'll never find it out. But I'm telling you, they know. <laughs> the people that are closest to us know that. But even more importantly, I know that. You see, it was finished on the cross. Praise God, it is finished. That's why, as a token of completion... We're told that when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down 
on the right hand of the majesty on high. You know, God, same, same thing in creation. God didn't rest on the Sabbath day because he was tired. He rested because he was finished. Jesus sat down because he was finished. Christ, Christ suffered these things because it was required of him. And Christ suffered these things because it was written of him. It was written of him. See, we've already alluded to that already, but remember what he said in verse 27 of our text. Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. See, the scriptures, and at that day, the scriptures were the Old Testament. Remember John 5, 39, he tells them, search the scriptures. He's referring specifically to the Old Testament. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. He said, search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. In other words, you think you can work your way to heaven under the law. The law wasn't given as a ladder to get you to heaven. It was given as a reminder that you need a Savior. That's what the law was given for. He said, search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, but they are they that testify of me. You see, he, he began at all the scriptures, and he... Um, in all the prophets, and he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You know, there's over 300 prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament. Well, let's, let's just look at a few. Let's look at some general prophecies first. Now, you can turn the, there or you can write these down. I've kind of got a list here, but you can do however you want to. But if you go all the way back over to the very beginning of the book in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, we read the very first prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he's talking to the serpent there, when he's talking to the serpent who, who seduced Eve into sinning there in the garden and eating of that fruit, he says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, I don't want to get too far off into the weeds here, but just understand that it's a foolish statement to talk about the seed of the woman. That was never talked about. It was always the seed of the man. And talking about genealogy, you trace it through the man. But do you notice what he's already given us a little insight into here? He's already given us some insight into the virgin birth. Because it's the seed of the woman, not the seed of Adam. The seed of Abraham, the seed of Adam. That was tainted by sin, but it was the seed of the woman that one day will bruise the head of the serpent. And if you, you as we all know, a head wound is a fatal wound. A heel wound you know, it said you'll bruise his heel. That, that doesn't last. That heals right up. But praise God, our Savior, the seed of the woman, shall bruise the head of the serpent. If you go a little farther over in Genesis chapter 12, as he's talking to Abraham there, he tells Abraham that in verse 3, I believe it is, that in thee shall all the nations, all the peoples of the earth be blessed. That sounds like a little innocuous statement and kind of maybe something that Abraham himself didn't maybe understand completely. But if you turn over sometime to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 8, you're going to find that that was the gospel preached to Abraham. Every time you read in the Old Testament that all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through the seed of the lineage of Abraham, that's the gospel message. He's telling us that out of your seed, out of your lineage, Abraham, one day the Savior, my son, will come. That's the gospel preached to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You remember when he was over there in the 49th chapter of the book of uh, Genesis, when Jacob was blessing his sons, he told Judah there in verse 10, he said, uh, uh, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. You know what the word Shiloh means? It comes from the word Shalom. 
Shalom means peace. Shiloh is the embodiment of peace. He's the one who made peace between both Gentile and Jew. The one who made peace between God and man. There on the cross. That is a prophecy of him coming. What about the prophecies of his birth? What about all the prophecies that tell us about the coming Messiah? We're familiar with Isaiah chapter 7, aren't we? Verse 14, he says, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That, that's a Hebrew word. I love the Hebrew language. I, I took a few courses of it in college and just loved it because a lot of it's expressive. And, and it, it means something. Emmanuel. Emmanuel means with us. El means God. Emmanuel means God with us. You see, this baby that was to be born in Bethlehem was to be God with us. See, that's the incarnation they're being taught about already. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 tells exactly where he would be born. He said, But thou, Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me he that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. That's not some earthly ruler. We've got earthly rulers. We've seen earthly rulers. Pharaoh was an earthly ruler. But his goings forth weren't from everlasting. But the Lord Jesus Christ's goings forth were from everlasting, you see. He's always been what he is today. If you turn over sometime to Matthew chapter 2 and verse 4, it'll tell you that scripture was fulfilled in the virgin birth. We could go on and on. Remember Hosea in chapter 11, I believe it is, verse 1 says that he called his son out of Egypt. Well, guess where Christ came out of? <laughs> You remember Joseph in the book of Matthew, we read about Joseph taking Mary and the child down into Egypt. You say, you know, I can just see those old prophets reading that saying, this is crazy. Calling my son out of the Messiah's coming out of Egypt. There's no way he's got to be born in Bethlehem. How's he going to get to Egypt? Well, the way he got to Egypt was that the angel appeared to J Joseph, his earthly stepfather, and said, Herod's out to kill you and the baby. You need to flee. And he went down into Egypt. And guess what? Another prophecy fulfilled, you see. What about his death? Well, I don't have time to read the whole chapter of Isaiah chapter 53. But, you know, we call that the gospel according to Isaiah. Read about that. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. By his stripes are we healed. That, that, that doesn't sound like something easy to go through, does it? That's not, that's not some teaching that you learn and you progress through the teaching levels to the point where you're somehow saved. No, that's talking about a sacrifice that had to be made. Read the 12th chapter of Exodus sometimes. That's the institution of the first Passover over there in, in, as they were about to leave Egypt. And you know... Christ, we're told in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, is our Passover. You see, that Passover was pointing to the real Passover. You, you keep reading there in Exodus chapter 12, you read about what they had to do to that Paschal lamb. They could not break a bone of it. Not a bone of that lamb was to be broken. We read over in John, the 19th chapter, that these things were done, that the scripture might be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. Look at the scriptures that are being fulfilled. I don't know what all Jesus took them to, but I can guarantee you some of these scriptures were the scriptures he took them to. Go to Numbers chapter 21 sometime and read about the serpent that Moses made at God's direction. 
resurrection, the brazen serpent, the brass serpent. And he was lifted up and those that looked to it lived. And we're told in John chapter 3 and verse 14 that as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. See, that was pointing them to Christ. And oh, I don't have time to go through Psalm 22. I would encourage you on this day to read Psalm 22. Everywhere else we read in the scriptures about the crucifixion of Christ, we read it from a third-person perspective. What they saw, what they observed, other people standing there looking upon it. But from Psalm chapter 22, we read it from a first-person account. And it starts off like this. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, I know some scholars say that Jesus was quoting David when he hung there on the cross. But I submit to you this morning that David was quoting Jesus when he wrote that psalm. Because that was a messianic prophecy of what was coming. It was fulfilled as Jesus hung there on the cross. Later on you'll read about how they laughed him to scorn and they... They, 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 they shook their heads at him and said he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Well, guess what they said to Jesus as they passed by? In Matthew chapter 27, they said he trusted in God. <laughs> Let him deliver him now. The mocking that occurred there on the cross was foretold by the scriptures. And Jesus himself said this more than once. In one place is Matthew chapter 26 and verse 24. He said, the son of man goeth as it is written of him. You see, his death was forecast and foretold in the Old Testament scriptures. And that's what he was looking at when he said, we're going we're gonna to start in the scriptures, Moses and all the prophets. I, 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 if I, I would think he had to go back to Genesis chapter 3 and just carry him all the way through. But you know, his resurrection was also foretold. We sometimes miss that point. Turn with me back over to Psalm chapter 16. And let's look at what it says here just for a moment. In Psalm chapter 16 and verse 8, we read this. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope for thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Now I'm not going to turn there and read it. But you turn sometime over to the message that Peter preached on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And you can begin reading in about verse 24 or 25. I'm not sure exactly there. But when you get on down to verse 31. In, in those verses he's quoting this very psalm. He's quoting the very psalm here and particularly the part that says, Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. And in verse 32, uh, Peter says, He seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. You see, the resurrection itself was foretold. It was written in Scripture. Christ had to suffer these things because it was written of him. Otherwise, Scripture would be broken. And he tells us that the Scripture cannot be broken. But, but let me just kind of, as we bring this to a close, and come down to the, some final thoughts here. Christ suffered these things, yes, because it was purposed and because it was written of him. 
But Christ suffered these things because it was necessary. In fact, that's what ought means. Ought not Christ to have suffered? Literally, that word ought there in Greek means it is necessary. That is, there is a need for it. It's, it's, it's proper, it's right, and it's required. And beloved, I want to tell you this morning, if you and I are ever to be blessed with a view of the heavenly glory, it was absolutely necessary that someone else pay our sin debt. Because you see, our God is a just God. Sometimes we think of God, I don't know, I get this view in my mind of God being a wrathful, vengeful God. And, but, and you can use those terms, but I want to say to you, the real, the real point of that is God is a just God. He is a holy God. He cannot abide sin. And, and He cannot let sin escape. You can't let things slide by. You know, sometimes in our court system, unfortunately, things slide by. Sometimes when I was prosecutor, I would try a case and the jury would let the person go that I just knew was guilty and justice was not served. Okay, we read about some cases where innocent people are put in jail and justice is not served in that way. But God's justice is always served. And if someone doesn't pay the sin debt for the people of God, then the people of God will have to pay that debt throughout eternity. It was absolutely necessary. In Mark chapter 8 and verse 31, we're told he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. You see, there was no other way. There was no other way for eternal salvation, for eternal redemption to be accomplished other than by the sacrifice of Christ. And you see, the, the problem wasn't with God. The problem was with us. When Adam ate of the fruit in the garden, we fell from the, 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 the condition of innocence there that we had with God, where Adam could walk with God and Adam could talk with God. Adam could be in the presence of God. But when Adam committed sin, that was no longer the case because we read in Habakkuk that God uh, cannot abide iniquity. He can't not look upon iniquity. He can't have it in his presence. He is a holy God. In fact, that's what the cherubim and the seraphim cry out around the throne, is it not? Holy, holy, holy. Why do they say it three times? Because God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all equally holy. They are three persons of the Godhead, but they are holy as one. And it's due to our depravity that there was no other way but for somebody to come and pay our sin debt. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Sin must be paid for by a sufficient payment. Remember what he said about our condition over in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. He said, you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sins. He goes on to describe what that meant, that we walked according to the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air. We, we were by nature children of wrath, even as the, the children of disobedience. You see, one thing that we have missed in this culture that we're in, and I'm afraid that culture has invaded the religious world, we have missed the point that we're not just sick and need a physician, we are dead and need a savior. We are dead in trespasses and in sins. You say, well, I'm, I'm a pretty good fella. I do some pretty good things. Well, maybe you do some, some righteous acts. 
Maybe you do some things that are good. I've done some good things. The problem is every good thing I've ever done has been tainted by the curse of sin within my body. See, the sin curse within me manifests itself even when I do righteous acts. And that's why Isaiah said in Isaiah 64 and verse 6 that all our righteous, righteousnesses, that is our good works, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags before God. If you try to take your righteousnesses and pile them up before God as your entryway, the key to your entry into heaven, then all God's going to see at the doors of heaven is a pile of stinking filthy rags. Because you, you can say, well, I've got a bunch of them. Well, you just got a bigger stinking pile. <laughs> I mean, that's all there is to it. The more you put on there, the worse it gets, you see. It takes more than the works of men. And praise God, it, takes, it took someone who would take that sin on himself. See, there was no other way. And praise God, there was no other man. There was no other man. You go back and look at the strongest man that ever lived, Samson. Read about him in Judges chapter 16, and he failed. You go back and read about the wisest man that ever lived, Solomon. Towards the end of his life, he began to heap up to himself women, wives, concubines that brought in idols. He failed, you see. There was only one man who was holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners, and it was he that was able. He had the ability, he had the power, he had the holiness to be able to bear our sins to Calvary. And that's what he tells us over in 2 Corinthians, is it not? Fifth chapter, verse 21, he says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It was a substitutionary death, and there was no other man that could do it. There was no other sufficient sacrifice, only the perfect Lamb of God. All those lambs that they would examine over there, and they would find that they were without blemish and without spot, they really weren't. They were only animals, and they never could attain to the level that Christ attained to. But when John the Baptist, standing there on the banks of the Jordan River, looked up one day, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. He was pointing to the perfect Lamb. He was pointing to the one that Peter says, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with, with uh, corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these times for you, who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. Did you catch that last part there? We should have faith. We should have hope. But we shouldn't have faith in our faith. We don't trust in our trusting. See, that's what the world's message is. It said, have you done what's necessary to get yourself right with God? And my answer every time is, no, I haven't. And neither could I. I do not have the ability to get myself right with God. I don't trust in my trusting. I don't trust in my choices. I've made so many bad ones through the years. I don't trust in my works because I'm a corruptible and corrupt man who does bad works every day of my life. But I can trust in one that has done what I could not do. You see, that your faith and hope might be in God. See, the gospel 
the true gospel of the Word of God is not about the sinner. I understand out in the world, most of it's focused upon what have you done? Your focus is upon the sinner. As a sinner, have you prayed the sinner's prayer? Have you, have you done what's necessary? No, beloved, that's not the good news. That's bad news. The good news is Christ has completed the work. When he, when he hung there on the cross and he cried out, it is finished, it was finished. It wasn't mostly finished and there's just a little bit left to do. No, beloved, it was finished, you see. And so the answer to the question that we're dealing with this morning, ought not Christ to have suffered, is yes, he ought to have. And he had to have suffered. Because that's the only way, because it was, it was prophesied of him, it was written of him, and he was the only one that could do it. But now for a few minutes, just a few minutes, I want to deal with that question in a little different way. Look at it from another perspective. Understand, as I said, I'm not, I know he could not have come down. Don't, don't take this any other way. Don't, don't let someone twist it and say, oh, he could have not gone. You know, what, he could have, no, he had to do what he did because he covenanted before the foundation of the world to do what he did. And to remain God, he had to do it. So the question is, could he have come down from the cross? Absolutely not because he committed to do it. But I don't want us to look at it in terms of what he was bound to do by his own covenant. But let me put it this way. By what he was obligated to do for us because of us. And this is what I want to say to you this morning. From that perspective, he ought not to have suffered. Which one of us here this morning has a claim to his mercy? Has a claim to his grace? Look at your life, child of God. I've examined mine this morning as I prepared to preach this message. I don't deserve any of the least of the graces and the mercies that I've received from him. Apart from that covenant that he entered into, he was not obligated to me. I don't have a claim upon his mercy. I'm a, I'm a sorry, broken condemned sinner by nature and there is nothing in me that he ought to have seen and he ought to have decided to come down and to do what he did he ought to have called the more than 12 legions of angels to bring him down from the cross when it comes to that perspective he ought not to have gone he ought not to have died he ought not to have had to suffer like he did for a worm such as I. From that perspective, he ought not to have. Beloved, you and I don't have a claim upon this mercy. By definition, grace is unmerited favor, you see. I know the world teaches that if you'll do certain things, you will obligate God to save you. But beloved, I want to say to you this morning, with all of the love that I can, that there is no obligation on the part of God to save you other than that which he obligated himself to do. He didn't look down through time and see, oh, Chris McCool's going to be a pretty good guy. I think I'll choose him. I think I'll save him. I, he didn't look down through time and say, Mackie Deason, he's going, to be a, he's going to be a great church member. I'm going to put him in. No, beloved. He looked down through time, we're told, in Psalm chapter 14, and he saw that there was none righteous. No, not one. There was none that deserved this. There was none that sought him, you see. We're told if you'll seek him, he'll be obligated to save you. Beloved, you won't even seek him 
in your nature. You see, from that perspective and from that perspective only, because I know he was obligated by what he covenanted to do, but from the standpoint of what we deserved, he ought not to have had to suffer. And you know, if we'll keep that perspective as we go through life and remember that we're only where we are by the grace of God, then that might change the way we deal with our fellow man. That might change the way we deal with that person that cuts us off in traffic. That might do, change the way we deal with those people that we consider to be our enemies today. That might change the way we just deal with life in general. And I say all that facetiously because, beloved, if we'll remember that Jesus suffered and died for one such as I, who had no claim upon his mercy and no claim upon his grace, it will change the way we live. And it will change the way we look at things. And you know something else it'll do? It'll change the way you deal with just life in general. I know everybody here has suffered loss. Everybody here has suffered the loss of loved ones. Everybody here has had questions in life. Everybody here has struggled with something in life. Why, Lord? Why did this happen to me? Why did this happen to this? You know, I could, name, I could go through, and this week I've been thinking about some of those situations where, where it looks from our standpoint like tragedies. It looks from our standpoint like unnecessary suffering. But, beloved, when we see it from the standpoint that what Christ did on the cross overcame all of that, and what Christ did on the cross uh, put all of that, uh, put death to death, it put death out of business, then we can serve Him and we can praise Him even in the midst of trouble and trial. Jesus said, in this world you shall have tribulations, but be of good cheer. How in the world can I be of good cheer? You don't know the tribulations I've had, preacher. I'll tell you how you can be of good cheer. He said, be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. <laughs> so when the tornado blows your house away, I'm not saying it's not trouble. It's terrible trouble. But you can still rejoice in your permanent home in heaven. When that mother or father or husband or wife or child dies unexpectedly or suffers through this life in ways that are unimaginable and then dies. Instead of losing faith, we can remember that they've now been transformed into a perfect spirit, spiritual body that one day will be reunited with that perfect physical body in the resurrection that's based upon Christ's resurrection. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and entered into his glory? Oh yeah, he ought to have because he obligated himself to do it. But from the standpoint of whether you deserved it, no, he ought not to have. He would have been perfectly just to send every single one of us to hell. But praise God for his eternal grace that's found only in the sacrifice and shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and through his resurrection, we now have hope of our resurrection, which will set all things right in your life. Thank you for joining us today on the Zion Primitive Baptist Church podcast. I hope the message has been uplifting and beneficial to you and that the Lord will continue to bless you to grow in grace and knowledge of the truth. Join us again tomorrow for another message of God's sovereign grace. If you would like to subscribe to our website, please go to www.zionpbc.com and sign up for email updates. 
If you have any questions, please feel free to contact the church at zionpbc1847 at gmail.com. That's zionpbc1847 at gmail.com. Or you can email me directly at jchrismacool at gmail.com. That's the letter J-C-H-R-I-S-M-C-C-O-O-L at gmail.com. Again, thank you for listening. May the Lord bless you is my prayer. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.